Welcome to Broad Appeal, the podcast that looks back at female-driven films from the not-so-distant past. I'm Brian. And I'm Sean. How are you doing today, Sean? You know me, Brian, super as always. Sean, have you seen Up in the Sky? There's a star out there tonight. And looking out the window, the ground is dappled with snow. And I think I hear sleigh bells somewhere in the distance. And you know what else? Somewhere a child is being born. (laughs) But that's always true. Especially around here. (laughs) Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, it is Christmas Eve. Uh, Maybe you're listening to this over the holidays, and we hope that you are having a joyous, festive time. We hope you've binge listened to every episode as you make your way home to your family. As my favorite Margaret O'Brien film would put it, we hope you're having yourself a merry little Christmas. Make your Yuletide gay. Very good, Brian. (laughs) Okay. So, uh, we have decided to offer you up a joyously wrapped package of our own. Now, Brian, would you call this a festive film? I would not call it festive, exactly, but I would say it's covered with rows and rows of frills. Hmm. Most of them designed by Academy Award winner Gabriella Pescucci. Oh, I'm there. Yes. The film we are going to be watching today is 1993's sumptuous costume drama, The Age of Innocence. Or, as it is known in French, Brian. In French? Yes. L'âge d'innocence. Perfect. <laughs> Why would it be known in French? Just for all our French listeners. <laughs> okay. Uh... <laughs> Joyeux Noël. <laughs> okay, so... Um... And to all, a good night. Okay, so we are going to be watching The Age of Innocence from 1993, directed by, at one point... America's commonly considered greatest living director, Martin Scorsese. Uh, What's that mean? So who's the new greatest living director? Well, I don't know if there's one single greatest living director, but I think common opinion would say that Martin Scorsese is not necessarily churning out masterpieces recently. Would you? Do you think The Wolf of Wall Street was commonly considered to be one of the great movies of the last few years? No, but then again, I do think that uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula is Francis Ford Coppola's best film. Well, okay. So what do I know? <laughs> so let's do word association here. Scorsese, go. Italian. And what else? Epic. Long. <laughs> okay. What kind of subject matter? Men. Yeah, men. Men. Because <laughs> obviously Marty has this, you know, masculine uh, uh, gangster picture reputation. But actually, in addition to Sandra Bernhard, your beloved in The King of Comedy... He also directed um, Ellen Burstyn to an Oscar in Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. He directed his then-girlfriend Liza Minnelli in a musical, New York, New York. He directed his uh, then-girlfriend Ileana Douglas in Cape Fear. That is the film that he made immediately before Age of Innocence. Now, I love Cape Fear. I know you do. Yeah, I do. Uh, it gets me... Re- oh, it turns me on in a really creepy way. I'm not sure that No, edit that part out. <laughs> Well, I'm not sure you're going to have quite the same response. I hope there's as much violence in this film. (laughs) Well, Sean, it depends. Are you looking for physical violence or subtle emotional violence? Um, Are there any cheeks getting bit off? No, sadly no. Well, Well, unless you consider cheeks of mutton on a finely appointed tablecloth. And that's exactly what I meant. You've known, I presume, for quite some time that Martin Scorsese made a costume drama in 1993 called The Age of Innocence. Why have you never been drawn to watch it? Many reasons, Brian. For example, it's a period drama. Sean, 
Do you know who you're talking to here? I know. Uh, are we using the word period drama as if it is some sort of slur? I'm going to be honest with you, Brian. They don't really do anything for me, apart from the aforementioned Bram Stoker's Dracula. Which is really more of a horror film. Nah. <laughs> okay, so non-horror costume dramas. Are there any that you like? I've seen a couple. Yeah, name some. Atonement. Okay, but that's that's the 1930s, but it's it's a World War II period. Drama. Okay, I've we're talking seen... ni- something set in the 19th century. I've seen many Betty Davis films. <laughs> Jezebel. <laughs> Which ones are we talking I'm pretty about? Sh- I'm pretty sure I've seen some movies set in the 19th century. Oh, I've seen Dangerous Liaisons before. Okay. Or, as it's known in French, Brian, <laughs> Les Liaisons Dangereuses. Very good. Very good. And Dangerous Liaisons actually happens to star one of the actresses who we are going to see in Age of Innocence, Michelle Pfeiffer. Michelle Pfeiffer. Oh, God. Okay, now let me be honest, Brian. I'm not against period dramas for those reasons. I'm a cinephile, Brian. You know yes. this. That's why we have this uh, this podcast. So I would never just say no to a period drama. It's just that amongst Martin Scorsese's of when I was a young film buff, back when I was absorbing everything I could, I used to buy film magazines, just the popular ones like Total Film and Empire. And I read this extensive um, history of, of Martin Scorsese's filmography. You know, you could, do, you could do this quiz to say, which Martin Scorsese are you? And the, the one kind of version that you turned out to be was one in which you think The Age of Innocence is his best film. And it was said in this kind of like passive-aggressive, jokey way that The Age of Innocence is this cold, frozen sore thumb. (laughs) In his filmography. Do you remember which type of Martin Scorsese you turned out to be? Yeah, I think it was um, Last Temptation of Christ. Mm, Barbara Hershey, College and Lips. I can see it. I can see it. Um, I can remember there was a PBS documentary that was about the history of film. Quentin Tarantino was on and he was like, Martin Scorsese, who's made such amazing movies like Mean Streets and Goodfellas, goes and wastes his time making a frou-frou costume drama like The Age of Innocence. And I virtually punched the television. Did Tarantino say frou-frou? Probably not. What I'm saying is, okay, I... (laughs) Frou-frou. What I'm saying is, had you known me at the age of 14, 15, going on 17... Back in the age of innocence. Yes, costume dramas were a staple of my cinema-going fair. And also of my reading fair. I quite love to read classic 19th century novels, and I loved their adaptations into film. Some of them obviously better than others, but The Age of Innocence is an interesting case because it has a stellar cast, it's sumptuous, it's based on a Pulitzer Prize-winning classic book. It was a critical hit, but in 1993, it didn't make back its budget, and it kind of is nestled in between. Literally, Scorsese went from Goodfellas, Cape Fear, The Age of Innocence... Casino. Whoa. Okay, so Brian, you've intrigued me. Just tell me, what is the story of this film? Where do you think The Age of Innocence is set? Let's start there. New England. No. Then I don't know. Well, where does Martin Scorsese set most of his movies? New York. Exactly right. Ah. So this is a story of New York power. Exactly in the same way as Mean Streets or Tax Driver or even Wolf of Wall Street. It just happens to be the story of the rich powerful New Yorkers of Gilded Age America in the 1870s, based on Edith Wharton's novel. 
she was from the rich upper classes of New York society in those days. So she knew it inside and out. Did she live through this? Yeah, I think essentially she was writing about the world in which she had grown up, which was kind of a fading society of the powerful people who had built America in the 19th century, the kind of bankers and robber baron type of people. Do you know anything about the plot of The Age of Innocence? What do, do you think? Is it a love story? What does it involve? Um, it involves a love triangle. I looked at the DVD cover. Okay, good. And it's a love triangle between who, who, and who? Okay, Daniel Day-Lewis, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Winona Ryder. Absolutely right. So Daniel Day-Lewis is our hero, Newland Archer. He is engaged to someone. Can you guess who it is? I'm going to say Michelle. No. 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 He's a fiancé of the beautiful flower with a spine of steel. Is that a quote from the film? No, that's my uh, my analysis. <laughs> May Welland, played by Winona Ryder. May Welland. When who arrives but her mysterious cousin from Europe, Countess Ellen Olenska, as played by Michelle Pfeiffer. Oh, Europe. Yes, Europe indeed. So as you know from your recent reading of Henry James, Sean... Oh America- no, Brian, what? you made me confess that I'm engaging in a period drama. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, now's the time to tell everybody. Sean, what book are you currently reading? Well, Brian, as we record this podcast, and I have no doubt that when it goes out, I will be reading Portrait of a Lady. As you know from your reading of Henry James... What is the difference between Europe and America in the 19th century? All Americans are brash, but they're also incredibly open. Naive. Naive. Um, Idealistic. Friendly. Yeah. And how? what are Europeans? Well, Europeans are exotic and bizarre. Bizarre or mysterious, full of machinations? Well, I've only got on to Madame Merle in mm. Portrait of a Lady, so I don't quite know what my opinion of Europeans is yet. So if I tell you that Michelle Pfeiffer's character is named Ellen Olenska, what country do you think she arrives from? Well, Ellen Olenska. She <laughs> no, could be, no, it's not. She, she, a... she, she one of those, uh, she one of them Olenskas from uh, Tipperary. No, there's no apostrophe after the O. Oh, I'm going to say Poland. Absolutely right. Woohoo! So Ellen is from the same family as Winona, or Michelle is from the same family as Winona, but she has married a Polish count. And as anyone knows in these books, if you marry a European count, he's gonna... He's gonna suck your blood. (laughs) He's going to be a cad, Sean. He's gonna cheat on her. So basically what happens is she may soon be on the market if she ends up divorcing her terrible Polish count who treats her like shit, and thus she would be open and available to Daniel Day to uh, switch his allegiances from Winona to Ellen. Oh, so it's quite a juicy plot, really. I mean, it's not too dissimilar in terms of uh, treachery to Dangerous Liaisons. (laughs) Yes, there's far less, you know, kind of open sexuality. Yeah, it has a universal sticker on the front, like, suitable for all ages. Okay. So there's no gore in this, basically. Okay, there is, however, a lot of uh, glamorous dresses, fine china... Uh, and there's also narration. Narration, that's the cheapest technique there is. Yeah? Yeah. Tell that to Billy Wilder. Okay, get him on the phone. <laughs> Hello, Sean, this is Billy Wilder. What do you have against narration? That's his voice. I thought he was from, like... <laughs> he was German. SoCal, you know? He was German. Well, I was always told that if you include a narrator in something, it's a sign that your storytelling is not up to scratch enough for it to be conveyed succinctly. 
what if that narrator is Academy Award winner Joanne Woodward reading extracts of the novel itself to the screen? That makes absolutely no difference. Well, you're I mean, Geraldine Page, perhaps. <laughs> it is the story of these three people, but it's also the story of a repressive society that has deeply entrenched codes and hierarchies of power. Much in the same way that, for instance, Casino is full of narration, right? Or actually, so is Goodfellas full of narration, mm -hmm. where we're not in the world of gangsters. We don't necessarily know how all their codes and different systems of honor work. So in a sense, the, um, the world of the elites in Gilded Age New York is just as stratified and kind of backstabbing as the world of gangsters, just in a, in a somewhat different way. They're not actually out hacking you to death. Do you know who the kind of presiding uh, mafia boss figure in this film is? George Zunza. No, it's a woman, and it's not Wayne Knight either. It's, it's the wonderful lesbian actress Miriam Margoyles. Do you know her? Yeah, I saw her in Clissold Park one day. <laughs> You're going to recognize her in this. She's she's practically immobile on a chaise longue surrounded by Pekingese <laughs> dogs. How do you say her surname again? I think it's Margoyles or maybe... <laughs> what, what did I say? No, is it Margoyles? I think it is. That sounds like one letter of gargoyles. <laughs> like... Oh, wait. Wait till you see her in the film. Um, Margulis, isn't it? I don't know. Listen, can all you people write into us? Because <laughs> everyone we're knows. Not, we're not going to find out between now and what's going on. <laughs> but why don't we just go down to Clissold Park and see if she's she's cruising with her Pekingese <laughs> puppies? Um, <laughs> Kevin Spacey? Okay, so we've gotten slightly off track, but can we just briefly um, talk about... I get sued for that. Why? We don't eat chemistry. Okay, we can take it out. Okay. Okay. We've gotten slightly off track, but can we just talk a bit about actresses? So what are you expecting from Winona in this film? Well, Brian, it's funny that I mentioned Bram Stoker's Dracula for a third time in this uh, introduction. If Winona's acting in Bram Stoker's Dracula is anything to go by, she will be credible, but... That's as far as it goes. What? Yeah. Well, why are you down on Winona? No, it's just that I have seen Winona in a period drama. Bram Stoker's Dracula is not her, it's not her strong set. <laughs> okay, but we're not going to watch Bram Stoker's Dracula. Uh. We're watching the film for which she received her first Academy Award nomination and for which she won the Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress. Yeah, okay, so I'm hopeful. I mean, I, I'm genuinely hopeful. Okay. I'm approaching this part with a very open mind. Winona in this film is, I think, a revelation, okay? And she was to audiences at the time. They knew her as kind of a teenage ingenue. They knew her from Tim Burton. People really thought she was going to win the Academy Award. Sadly, for her, she lost. So who was she up against that year? 12-year-old Anna Paquin in The Piano. No, I've never seen The Piano. Did she deserve to be beaten by a child? That's always pretty humiliating when that happens. If you go back, everybody, and watch the clip of them announcing this... It seems to me that Winona's face freezes into a mask of pain as she tries to hide the fact that of her of her despair at being at being beaten by a twelve year old. Does she um, mask her pain any better than Sally Kirkland does getting beaten by Cher? <laughs> no. Oh no, Sally Kirkland is. She takes the biscuit. <laughs> she has that biscuit. So, Sean, what qualities do you expect Winona to show in this? Fragility. Mm -hmm. uh, but also strength. <laughs> it sounds like this. It sounds like uh, describing a perfume. Fragility, but also strength. Poise, but also tenacity. Um, 
breeding, but also earthiness. I, you know what? I think that's not far off. I'm, I'm building up the Age of Innocence because it's a, it's a film that means a lot to me. I don't know how many times I've seen it. I've seen it many, many times. But when's the last time you've seen it? Not in a while. And I, I'm not going to say that I think it's a perfect movie. I, you know, in some ways it is a stagey and stolid adaptation of a book. Um, but in other ways, it's vibrant and exciting and kind of experimental. Kind of goes a bit too far, kind of over the top. But that's, I think, what I what I like and enjoy about it. Brian, I've got a very open mind for this film. He is a great director. So why wouldn't I expect there to be flourishes of brilliance in this? Can I say one thing? Flowers. There's going to be lots of opening, sexualized flowers okay bursts of color sean there are going to be moments where the entire screen turns yellow ah didn't someone say they, they should have shot off this film in like smell-o-vision or something <laughs> probably you know brian I'm, I'm excited to be going on this journey with you <laughs> okay get on your petticoat and suck in here we go it's the age of innocence look at reality not dreams i just want us to be together i can't be your wife newland is it your idea i should live with you as your mistress i want somehow i want to get away with you and find a world where words like that don't exist oh my dear (laughs) where is that country have you ever been there Sean McGovern, you have left the age of innocence into the age of experience. How do you feel? I feel great. You like this movie? I, I was very surprised how much I liked it. During the film, like from basically when it started, I thought to myself, I need to go to the bathroom. But I just said, no, I'll go in a few minutes. I'll go in a few minutes because I was getting quite involved in the story. And then in the end, I needed to pee when it was finished. <laughs> barely could, barely held it in bladder control yeah, two, I faded to yellow two, <laughs> two bladders up the film is definitely shot from the eyes of a cinephile this is something I love about Scorsese's films even his more recent ones I mean I haven't seen um, what's it called Argo what was it called Argo Arthur the one with the boy Norman Hugo Hugo <laughs> I haven't seen... I haven't seen... Charlie. (laughs) Vincent. I haven't seen Hugo, but everyone said that that was the kind of film that is made because he loves film. And this is the thing about Scorsese that I really like, because he's not just a director who wants to get his vision across. He's someone who wants to honour the film history that came before. And this is definitely seen in his very male version of a period drama. Yeah, that was interesting. You said during the film you felt this had a male or masculine aesthetic style. I said the camera was very penetrative, very probing. I hate to use these words, but Mm -hmm. uh, 
it did lots of kind of close-ups, not extreme close-ups, but from a long, from a long distance. It would swoop, yes, yeah, swooping close-ups, as well as just the way the camera angle looked around. It was more omnipotent. And that connects, I guess, also with the idea that there's narration, which you were kind of wary about. The narration and the camera are observing the lives of these people from the 1870s, and we're learning about what their world was like. Now, not to bring it back to Bram Stoker's Dracula again, (laughs) but that is a film that actually has a narrator in about two parts of the film. And that is an example of of like really poorly executed narration. Whereas I was very surprised in this. For about 10 minutes, for the first 10 or 15 minutes, I swear, we see so much movement of characters, but no dialogue. We have this narration from Joanne Woodward as we see through the eyes of Newland Archer. It was quite literary. We chuckled a few times because there's these wonderful little aphorisms that are in there, such as... It is a rarely acknowledged fact that most Americans want to get away from entertainment even quicker than they want to get to it, yeah. and things like that. Yeah, so it wasn't just telling you who a character was, it was making these kind of asides to the audience, kind of cultural asides. He has a real interest in like immersing people in a world that has secret codes and secret hierarchies. So just like in the beginning of Casino where I think it's Robert De Niro narrating. He's talking about the eye in the sky is watching the gambling tables, and he's, like, laying out, this is the world of the casino. Here, we're learning the world of the codes of the operas and the different balls and what women do and what men do. It is quite a tense film, and it's tensest in its moments where there's this polite conversation going on and all these suggestions about what is and what is not, you know, acceptable behaviour. And the consequences of someone's behavior and their past following them. It really was quite claustrophobic. Quite, it was quite claustrophobic, quite a paranoid film, really. Newland Archer's mother and sister, they are like, like you said, you said yourself, they're like a Greek chorus. These women are saying, oh, did you, did you see that Ellen did this? And this was the dress that she wore. And surely no one thinks this. And there, there's other characters yeah, throughout the film who are sort of commenting on Ellen's actions. Yes, yeah, and by commenting on it, they're reinforcing it, saying this is not the way polite society behaves. Yeah. And the way that somebody's marriage from a different continent, I mean, God, could you imagine if this, if they had the internet at this time, <laughs> of how you couldn't escape anything? I've often thought to myself that most of Henry James and his ilk, the novels, would not function properly if the internet existed. I mean, maybe he would have been into Snapchat because it would have destroyed the, the, the evidence. evidence. Yeah. But, okay, so you've referenced a couple of times to, like, marriage and rumors and someone's quote-unquote past following them. I think you're referring to the Countess Olenska? Yeah, Countess Ellen Olenska played... With curls by Michelle Pfeiffer. One element you didn't quite love was her hair. No, I wasn't a fan of the hair, to be honest. The curls looked like they were just going to blow away at any point. I think the significance of them is that her hair looks radically different yeah. from everyone else. And, and I understand that. We don't need to go blow by blow through the plot. <laughs> we don't need to go into her hair too, too much either. <laughs> blow dry by blow dry. Why don't you just outline what Ellen's predicament is? Okay, so Countess Ellen Olenska, she, as far as we're told, had a very unconventional marriage in which her husband was pretty horrid. And she escaped from him. People say, oh, of course she should escape. From such a, ter- such a terrible man. Yeah, yeah, and by horrid, you mean he's like sleeping around with whores, and I mean they never really say, no, but they, they imply that he does a lot of other dastardly things. He might things. even be bisexual. Yeah, but it, she escaped from him with his secretary, who were told oh, she also 
lived in sin with. And was insinuated. It's, it's heavily insinuated. Yeah. Heavily insinuated. And when she comes back to New York, she stays with her very, very pure, innocent cousin, Mae Welland, played by uh, Winona Ryder, who is betrothed to Daniel Day-Lewis's Newland Archer, who is an upstanding member of the law profession, the legal profession. A lot of the plot sort of hinges on what Ellen's going to do in relation to her husband. Is she going to go back to her husband? Or crucially, is she going to get a divorce? The family sort of initially draws Newland into the case because he's a lawyer and he's going to offer her some legal advice. Tell them why he um, starts this attraction to Ellen Olenska. What What is it about her? She represents someone who's quite independent, who's quite exotic. Um, Significantly, when he first meets her at the opera, she extends her hand to be kissed. And he's a bit thrown by it because it seems so sort of European. She smokes cigarettes that she sort of lights from the fire. Ellen kind of shows up late at times when really you should be arriving on time and things. And her fashions are completely out of touch. Yeah, so there's a kind of careless breeziness about her and spirit of independence. So of course, as someone who's, you know, betrothed to basically the most beautiful but the most conventional um, woman in the society... He's then drawn to this other person who seems like a more exotic bloom. I definitely think the flower imagery is quite deliberate, right? The opening title sequence, which is by Saul and Elaine Bass, it has all these various opening flowers. It The film fades to bright colours, which I quite like as well. Instead of fading to black or, or fading out or just wiping, whatever, it has these very vibrant purples and you know, yellows and reds. and It shows much of the passion that is not presented on screen. This film is suitable for all ages. It's one of those universal things. And I think like a film like 2001 A Space Odyssey, wait for it, I'm going to make a point. 2001 A Space Odyssey is full of menace and danger, but also a villain in the form of Hal the Computer. Mm. And I'd say Scorsese, being a very violent filmmaker traditionally, wanted to make a film that was quite brutal and quite menacing, but without any of it obvious. Ooh, so do you think Winona is how? Um, Winona is the substitute for the, for the evil computer in wow. this film. Wow, I think you have to write a monograph on this topic. Let's talk frankly, Newland. I felt a difference in you, especially since our engagement. Since our engagement? If it's untrue, then it won't hurt to talk about it. And if it is true, then why shouldn't we talk about it now? I mean... You might have made a mistake. If I'd made some sort of a mistake, would I be down here asking you to hurry our marriage? I don't know. You might. It would be one way to settle the question. Yeah, so Newland and Ellen are drawn together. You thought those scenes were sexier than you expected them to be, even though virtually no flesh is shown. Yeah, way sexier. Like, when they kiss, they do that whole kind of, like, mouth-rubbing thing that's quite sexy. <laughs> he kisses her feet at one point, which is a bit, like, fetishy, but also, like, super repressed, you know? It made me realise how covered up women were. Gloves and everything. And bonnets. <laughs> and bonnets. <laughs> I mean, basically... Newland and Ellen have this increasingly throbbing passion, but they're both sort of connected to other people. And if this were a more independent time, they could just kind of throw off their shackles and run away with each other. But something, some sort of sense of propriety keeps preventing them from doing that. And you had a really, I thought, appropriate term to describe those scenes where they would be together in her boudoir kind of 
longingly looking at each other and breathing and touching hands. You said it was a form of? A form of edging. <laughs> like, it was all this edging and no money shot in the entire film. <laughs> yeah, they were like two evangelical teenagers who can, like, rub up against each other as long as they're wearing their jeans, you know? <laughs> Frottage is okay, kids. I also, it's interesting what you said about the camera being penetrative. They'll be in those scenes uh, having these smoldering conversations and then he'll cut away to the fireplace and the logs will be burning or the men will go off and he'll cut to an intense close-up of them like clipping the cigars, yeah. you know? The objects are very, very significant throughout this movie. Oh my god, so much. I, so much. I really appreciated this, the art direction of this. Because even the shots of the food. My father... When we went to see this movie, that for years afterwards, whenever I would talk about it, I remember like, "Oh, that's that asparagus movie." I, I, I noticed there's not a single stalk of asparagus yeah, in the not entire a film. Yeah, a single one. But you can understand why he had visions of phantom asparagus because there's sort of every other kind of food on display. Anyway, the idea that in modern society, in a, in what they strive to have as a modern society, that a person cannot get divorced without having their complete future in ruins is a very scary thing. It's a very it's quite a, it's quite a horror film in that sense. Mm. It's also a melodrama. It's about two people trapped in a social system where the social system is the villain. You often talk about that in relation to your beloved Douglas Sirk. Yeah. And there is, I mean, we we could actually say there are villains in this film, but really that they are just part of the suffocating society in which they are all victims, really. In one of the narration points, the Joanne Woodward narrator says, it was a hieroglyphic society. And I think that's why the narration helps us interpret those hieroglyphs. And one of the more memorable speeches that Michelle Pfeiffer has at one point, where she says, to me, America meant freedom. Big, long, straight streets that run up and down with numbers and landmarks as clear as day. So this idea that America should be this open society, should be a democracy, unlike the creepy old world of Europe. But actually, America is just as perniciously suffocating underneath its, its apparent openness. So, Michelle Pfeiffer's performance. We were both struck watching it that she doesn't really look like anybody else, does she? No, it's it's no surprise that she ended up being Catwoman, is it? There's Not, a no feline surprise. quality to her. Completely. And she's absolutely gorgeous, but doesn't look like anybody else. But you would have thought that Michelle Pfeiffer was quite a conventional-looking... Uh, gorgeous, of course, but conventional-looking in terms of beauty. But she's not. She has this kind of very wide face. Mm. And And it makes her stand out, I think. The yeah. other women all sort of look unified of a type and she clearly is isolated yeah very much so yeah okay and and her counterpoint in the movie as you've said is innocent virginal may welland played by winona now you were disparaging winona's period acting based on the single one example of the great bram Stoker's dracula yeah but how was she in this in many ways much more restrained. There was a restrained intensity. I can see why she got the Oscar Oscar nomination for this. Mm-hmm. At first, you were saying, oh, Winona really is a supporting character. She's not in this very much because we sort of meet her and we know that she and Daniel Day-Lewis are engaged. But then we really get into him and Michelle and their burgeoning relationship. You're like, when is Winona going to come back? But I, I do think... As the movie goes on, she comes back with a vengeance, much like Hal the Computer. I really love this comparison. Well, when we were watching this, we called Newland Archer passive. Uh-huh. And actually, I said, no, passive is too much. He's inactive. Mm-hmm. He is a man of conflicted values, and he kind of just putters along. 
and it's quite a difficult character to really understand or even like. And you would think the same thing for Mae Wellen. She's the wife. Uh, she's younger. She's in this in, in very much part of this class system. But actually, she is the decider of her husband's future, not just her own. Right. So he's constantly torn, like, should I run off with Ellen or not? And as he gets more and more ensnared in this marriage to May, who he thinks knows nothing about what's going on, very cleverly we learn that she she does, doesn't she? She does. She knows probably more than we give her credit for, which I think is a great skill in a character. He's constantly like telling her little white lies of sort of, I have to go to a business trip to Washington where really he's going to meet um, Michelle. And she's like, oh, but I heard the case was postponed. And he's like, oh, uh, you, I, you, yes, well, hmm. You know, yeah, and she's says, like catching him in little the things. The case is not postponed, but I am. Yeah, my going is. Yeah, my going is. But then at the very end, when it seems like he's finally sitting her down and um, he's he, he seems clearly to have decided, I'm going to just throw off all traditions and run away with Ellen and go off in Europe and damn it to hell with all with all what society thinks. She has one final trump card, which is... She's pregnant. Yes. She's pregnant, and so she uses babies and family to ensnare him, but she cleverly tells Ellen before she tells him. Do you notice it's it's a scene of confrontation that's also a lack of confrontation. Exactly. Like, I was waiting the entire time for the Oscar clip, yeah. you know, where suddenly she shouts, she tears at her bonnet, <laughs> you know. You mean her bonnet or her bodice? No, no, her bonnet. She's pulling at her hair. <laughs> And I thought, oh, here it comes, here it comes, and it never came. And it wasn't a sense of anticlimax. But she, 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 like Hal, I, I'm, I'm so obsessed with this comparison. It's so apt, Sean. Well, you're welcome, Brian. Hal is menacing because he's sort of flat, but what are you talking about, Dave? Whereas Winona Ryder is, in that final conversation, she's like, I didn't do wrong, did I, Newland? You know, she's like, she is oppressing him, but in this very quiet, very demure way. And yes, you do have to pay attention to it, but she is, what I said, like this flower who emerges to actually be the strongest character in the whole movie. What's that line from Macbeth? Oh. Look the innocent flower, but be the serpent under it. Oh, Some, something like that. Yeah, yeah, fantastic, yeah. I, I liked Archer saw all the harmless-looking people at the table as a band of quiet conspirators with himself and Ellen the center of their conspiracy. He guessed himself to have been for months the center of countless silently observing eyes and patiently listening ears. So Brian, having seen this film uh, multiple times yourself, you seem to forget some of the plot aspects and you thought that Elenska and uh, Archer had sex in the film. Yeah, I could have sworn that they had sex in that stone ice house where they go at that one point, but no, it's just clever Julius Beaufort just keeps arriving. You really liked him, didn't you? He's the sort of rakish banker. He's the, like, wanker bear that you uh, end up fancying. Yeah, you loved his beard and his cigars. He just kept showing up. So, um... I, you know, it's funny, I really, really remember the opening and the closing of this film. The film does lag in the middle because there's quite a lot of back and forth where Newland is like, oh, I'll run off with Ellen. Oh, no, I won't. Oh, I will. Oh, I won't. And it's it's tricky. Newland Archer is a hard character to sympathize with. And Daniel Day-Lewis does his best, but it's definitely not 
I think you sympathize more with Ellen because she feels like one of us. Also, correction, everybody. Miriam, M-A-R-G-O-Y-L-E-S, is apparently pronounced... Margulies. Yeah, so she and Juliana maybe are distantly related, but at some point the spelling changed. Margoyles. <laughs> Margoyles. But she does sort of... So she plays... I the, thought it was Margoyles she, myself. She plays the overweight sort of matriarch of the family. She was quite good, she? was she? great. She, she should have been a Best Supporting Actress you nominee. Know, I kept wondering how they shit in these films. <laughs> the dresses are so big. And she is heavily overweight. She's... she's ick. She can't rise from she her chair. She can't rise long. from her chair. I'm like, I'm like, the practicality of this world just kept like coming back to me. It's like, how do you go to the bathroom? Maybe that was in the DVD extras. So I have to look it up. <laughs> that was the 18 cut. So I was really... The NC-17 edition. <laughs> I was re- edging and chamber pots. So would you tell people to watch The Age of Innocence? Yes, I would. What kind of mood should they be in? Well, I would have said in the mood to pay attention. I think that's part of the thing about period dramas that I don't really uh, go for the entire time. Is that it's not that I don't get things. It's just that I don't want to have to pay attention to so, like turns of phrase and looks and that kind of stuff. So the mood should be ready for interpretation. Yeah, but also ready for a kind of a quite an intense, uh, ultimately unsatisfying sexual experience <laughs> so if you <laughs> if you want to be ready for sex but not get it the age of innocence is the best holiday treat for you yeah this this christmas day <laughs> this christmas day edge up to the age of innocence well this is our last podcast of 2015 we will be returning to you in the new year and sean our next podcast episode will be a big first a guest will be joining us who is an expert on the career of none other than Bette Midler, and we will be looking at... For the boys, her Oscar-nominated role and real passion piece. I really look forward to seeing it. Yes, it's a wartime musical extravaganza. Until then, you can follow us on Twitter at Broad Appeal Pod. You can download the podcast from Stitcher or iTunes. And please, please... If you want to offer us a Christmas gift, rate or review us, give us some stars. If you haven't done it yet, turn off this podcast now and please do it if you like us, because we want more people to hear about the show. Do we have any Christmas greetings to everyone? Yes, remember, this is not a secular holiday, it is a religious holiday. (laughs) So get down on your knees and pray. Yes. All right. Uh, We love you all, and Merry Christmas, and a Happy New Year. From everyone here at Broadfield. Bye-bye. Bye.